0: I would love to hear you weigh in on what I believe is the pernicious role of metrics in the workplace and in the economy.
1: I have a few questions about the upcoming recession.
2: Rising wages should be a separate discussion when you're talking about inflation, but everything I hear in the media is saying that you know rising wages is bad because it's contributing to inflation. And hopefully you're addressing that in your book and uh, maybe you can comment on this question. Hmm.
1: Happy New Year, Nick. Uh, you make any New Year's resolutions?
3: Uh, No. I need to do that, don't I?
1: Yeah, yeah. I made a New Year's resolution, and that that is, Nick, I resolve to do a better job of answering more of our listener questions.
3: Okay, well, that sounds terrific.
1: Which is why today... We are recording an AMA and Ask Me Anything. Our voicemail inbox has been overflowing with questions. Yeah. And as we kick off the new year, uh, we thought it would be a good idea to clear that voicemail box out. Excellent. Well, let's get to it.
2: Hey, Nick. This is Rich from California. Here's my question. Based on everything you guys have said and I've read, rising wages should make it possible for people to afford more expensive things. And therefore, it should be a separate discussion when you're talking about inflation and rising wages. But everything I hear in the media is saying that, well, you know, rising wages is bad because it's contributing to inflation. And no one seems to address the other side of it, which is it actually combats inflation when people make more money because they can afford to buy things. And as you know, and as you said, we're way behind on catching up on rising wages. And hopefully you're addressing that in your book, and uh, maybe you can comment on this question. Thanks a lot. Keep up the great work.
3: Rich poses an excellent question about the relationship between inflation and wages. And while, of course, it is true that when wages go up, uh, particularly if wages go up a lot, prices generally have to increase because wages are a component of virtually every Price of you know of the cost of making virtually every product and service, uh, but if you earn seven dollars and twenty five cents, uh, which is the national federal minimum wage, and that was to double to fifteen dollars an hour or go even higher, twenty dollars an hour, let's say, uh, yes, prices would go up, but a three percent increase in product prices is a small price to pay not to pun for a 50 or 75% increase in wages. And you know, the main problem of the American economy that you know the thing that we've talked about again and again goldie is the fact that we are living through a generation of wage suppression. Right. And you know, the median full-time worker earns about 50k today if they hadn't gotten so screwed over by these decades of neoliberal policies, they'd earn about $100,000 a year. And would prices be higher if every American earned, every you know middle-class American earned in the range of twice as much? Absolutely, uh, but it, it is unequivocally true that all of those families would be on a relative basis better off. They would be able to afford more, they'd have more savings, they would pay more taxes, you know, all, all of the things that it takes to make an economy thrive
1: right. So I, I just want to add a little a little context and a little history uh, onto your answer, Nick. and that is we we did raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars in Seattle, and there was a lot of research done by researchers who were initially, hostile to the minimum wage increase yeah. and they found little or no impact on prices in restaurants and grocery stores uh, to industries that hire a lot of minimum wage workers so we had a substantial increase in the minimum wage and little or no observed increase in prices and there's a lot of reasons why that may have occurred um but let's be clear workers are not always paid exactly what they're worth. They're not always paid um, uh, according to their marginal productivity. And therefore, there's a lot of room within prices in the current economy to absorb the cost of higher wages. The other thing is a little historical context. And that is this idea, this idea that it is rising wages that is fueling inflation is so 1970s. Yeah. Um, That was the theory behind uh, Fed Chair Paul Volcker's dramatic increase in interest rates. And we're talking like nothing like what we're doing today. We're talking like 17 percent interest rates just to to inflict this this really painful recession in order to break the power of labor to demand higher wages and the whole purpose of what he was doing was crushing demand for labor to reduce the power of workers organized and otherwise to continue to demand higher wages. And that was to get out of an inflationary cycle that arguably uh, wages did play a significant role in, though probably not as significant as uh, the theory that informed even Volcker said. But to be clear, this is not the 1970s. Yes. This inflation is not that inflation. Yeah. Uh we have global inflation. The US isn't close to the worst inflationary economy within the developed world right now. You have inflation in Europe, you have inflation in Asia, you have inflation in Africa and in Latin America, it is all over the world so to say that somehow it is american workers getting higher wages that is causing inflation just isn't true we have a global supply chain crisis so well you said in theory let's be clear it's theory that we don't necessarily accept but it's also the evidence for it is 50 years old it's an economy that no longer exists this is an entirely different economy and there is no evidence that it is the demand for higher wages that is uh, increasing inflation in the United States. And in fact, while wages have been increasing at a higher pace now than before the pandemic, it is at a lower rate than inflation. Wages are not keeping up with inflation. Therefore, it cannot be wages that are largely responsible for inflation. Exactly.
3: And whenever we talk about an issue like this, it's always important to punctuate it by reminding people how out of control corporate profits and -hmm. things like stock buybacks are. Because part of the big problem is that corporate profits have basically doubled as a percentage of GDP. Stock buybacks have gone from zero to about $1.3 trillion, I think, last year. Just for perspective, $1.3 trillion is enough to pay every working person about another $10,000 a year. So here's $1.3 trillion that corporate America effectively flushes down the toilet in terms of uh, capital efficiency. All it is is just a Ponzi scheme for rich people. And all of that money could have been used for wages. And then none of the challenges that ordinary families are now facing from higher prices would exist because everybody would have more money to spend and make no mistake. That's not inflationary. You're just taking money out of of the cost and moving that $1.3 trillion from one column to another, right? Just a different group of people who are getting it. It's still in the stack of expenses. So, you know, I guess the punchline is we can pay people a lot more and we might have a little bit more inflation, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't.
1: Yeah. So, you know, this is a perfect segue, Nick, because we have an email from Carly. Uh, Carly writes, with all this talk of inflation, I've been wondering why no one ever talks about deflation. Has there ever been a time period of strong deflation? It seems to me that deflation would be beneficial for the masses, but would it have bad side effects like people losing jobs? Well, I guess the way the best way to answer that, Carly, is to say, yes, there has been a time period of strong deflation, and you might know it as the Great Depression. That's right. From around 1929 to 1934, we had on average about 7% annual deflation. That meant prices fell on average 7% a year, and it resulted in mass unemployment, the, the the highest unemployment and um, most enduring unemployment in American history. That's why we call it the Great Depression. It was greater than anything we'd ever experienced. And in fact, much of what President Franklin Roosevelt uh, experimented with in the New Deal were measures to break that deflationary uh, crisis uh break that cycle and uh that's where all that government spending came in uh that is where efforts to raise the minimum wage came in uh uh support for industries to expand manufacturing and the problem with deflation you have to understand that if we're in a deflationary cycle you would have to be nuts to invest money in expanding manufacturing in expanding or, or, your business or doing anything Right.
3: Because your future returns are going to be lower than the costs you're taking on to produce
1: whatever it is. You you take money valued now and invest it in a future that is smaller than than the present. And that is the opposite of capitalism. Yeah. Capitalism is all about borrowing money from the future on the expectation that the future will be much larger than the present. So you're going to yeah. take your money and you're going to invest it in the future and you're going to get returns because the economy will be bigger in the future. In deflation, GDP shrinks. Yeah, <laughs> And so the economy is smaller, there's less purchasing power, uh, the, you can sell less. And so that feeds in on itself. And after the financial collapse of 2008 the housing market collapse and the financial collapse the great recession what the federal reserve feared most was deflation they feared we were heading into a deflationary cycle you heard a lot uh this term uh that they used which was um what, what was it uh nick the se- secular uh um, secular
3: stagnation
1: Right, you, you heard this term, secular stagnation. stagnation. They were talking about a deflationary cycle, a long period of what they feared would be slow growth, and they kept setting inflation targets. Like now, they're setting an inflation target where they want to get down to about two and a half percent, and it well, back then, they were trying to get up to 2, 2.5%, two and, and they couldn't, no matter how much quantitative easing they did, no matter how much they cut interest rates. And we got to the point where interest rates were just above zero, and other countries, Japan most famously, cut interest rates below zero to try to avoid a deflationary crisis. And Japan ended up with decades of stagnation because once you're below zero, there's not much you can do. And I believe, and I don't think there's there are many analysts talking about this, but I believe a lot of what's driving the Federal Reserve now is that they saw an opportunity for the first time in 15 years to raise interest rates substantially, and they jumped on it because they want to be able to slash interest rates in the future if they need to in order to head off a deflationary cycle. They fear deflation more than inflation, I think, long term, because deflation is the Great Depression. Yeah, that's right. Okay, next. Hi, I'm Sarah from Seattle, and I have a few questions about the upcoming recession. And I think I kind of know what you think, but I was hoping that you could go more into what the signs are to look out for for when it's about to start, like really, really start, and maybe even some signs of like when it's coming to an end, and maybe just some like good advice for someone who's scared of maybe losing their job in this recession. Thanks.
3: Well, Sarah, you're, you're asking about the upcoming recession. And I know that there's a lot of talk in the news about the upcoming recession, and of course, it is true that there will be a recession in the future, much as much in the same way as there will be an ice age in our future. Uh, but it's very hard to tell when that will be. And it, it, and I think it's also really important to acknowledge that in these massively polarized times, there's a huge constituency of folks who desperately want the country to go into recession, because if it does not, President Biden or whoever it is that runs instead of him will win and the Republican will not uh, because the uh, because the economy has actually been in relatively great shape and it's getting better all the time. Uh, So I have been personally very, very skeptical about this inflation talk since it began Because my sense of the economy is that in most ways, it's booming, other than the fact that there's been this big correction in the stock market, uh, which was wildly overvalued uh, to begin with.
1: Um, To to, to borrow a phrase, it was inflated.
3: It was inflated. (laughs) Uh, and and the fact that the stock market is lower makes a small number of rich people very, very, very sad. But uh, the stock market has virtually nothing to do with the real economy. And that feels and seems uh, very, very healthy right now. And there's another thing I think that uh, we, we have to take into account, which is the, the momentous achievements of the Biden administration over the last 24 months on economic policy. So, if you add it up, uh, th- there's about $4 trillion uh, that have been and will be deployed over the next couple of three, four, five, 10 years. Uh, you know, uh, money going into infrastructure, money going into the energy transition, money going into healthcare, all sorts of things like that. The first major investments uh, in the country, in the middle class that we've had really in a generation. And that is highly anti-inflationary. Those are the sorts of programs that uh prevent
1: uh recessions. So um did I say highly you said anti-inflationary, but you know what? I, I you misspoke, but I, I I'm gonna say that yes, they are anti-inflationary. And, and they, and, are, <laughs> they are. You you yeah. meant to say anti-recessionary, yeah. Yeah. but I would argue they're also not inflationary in that they invest in Uh, Expanding critical uh, uh, infrastructure, both public and private, uh, that is needed to expand the supply chain and provide uh, cheap, reliable energy. That's right let's remember how important energy is to prices. Yeah. Uh, it was the, the various oil shocks of the 1970s that tipped us into that inflationary cycle, that stagflation cycle in the first place. Yeah, uh, And it was cheap oil in the 1980s that was largely responsible for our recovery. So once we make that shift to green energy, one of the advantages of green energy is that the prices are very stable. As
3: for advice... Uh, With respect to losing your job in a recession, boy, that's a tough one. Uh, But here's at least one piece of cheap advice is don't work for a schmuck like Elon Musk. That would be my best (laughs) advice.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You don't Uh, want to lose your job. I will say that our recent experience of recessions has been really distorted. Recessions tend to be relatively short. Uh, And they tend not to be, and over the past half century, have tended not to be severe until the Great Recession, which was the worst uh, economic uh, downturn since the Great Depression. And until we hit the uh, pandemic recession, which was just a a bizarre confluence of circumstances. It was a, a black swan event. Uh, which is unlikely to repeat be repeated very often so we had two extremely severe unusual and scary recessions there are some arguments to say that we had a recession this past year in the technical sense of the term of uh GDP decreasing for two consecutive quarters yeah uh, and that may or may not be have been true with the final numbers but It didn't have an effect on employment, unemployment,
3: which is mostly what you're worried about in a recession is everybody losing their job. And and, and the opposite occurred during this, quote unquote, technical recession. Right.
1: And and so, you know, there may be a recession, but I I would just say that, you know, if if GDP uh, shrinks and nobody is there to feel the fall, uh, did it did it make a noise?
3: Yeah, there you go. (laughs)
1: That tortured metaphor. If you still have your job, it's not a recession.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay, here's here's a question I know you'll love to answer, Nick. We got an email from Jason who asks, in your podcast, you are often rightly critical of the Economics 101 view of the world. As someone who must teach Econ 101, is there a right way to teach it? Should we even bother trying to fix economics or just let the whole thing go and allow some future field of human ecology or complexity science to teach us how societies acquire and organize resources?
3: Oh, Jason, such a good question uh, and so hard to answer. So, uh, A, I have guilt. Uh, I I suspect Goldie has guilt. Uh, My co-author, Eric Beinhacker, has guilt that we have not yet published our book that seeks to upend the orthodox view of economics. And so in the absence of being able to point you to an alternative, it feels really crappy and inadequate to say, yeah, Econ 101 sucks, even though it it really, really does. I, but I think you pose a really, really important question, which is, is it better to have a bad framework than no framework? And- um You know, I just don't know. I mean, you know, the econ 101 view of the world, this like if one thing goes up, another thing goes down, uh, you know, raising wages, kills jobs, tax cuts for the rich, create growth, all that nonsense. I mean, it's just a bad framework and the intuitions that were built on top of the econ 101 uh, worldview, you know, have obviously done a lot of harm, but you've got to replace them with something. And you know the good news is that I, I think the social science of the last 40 years suggests what that is, but, but you do really have to rip economics down to the studs to get to a better answer about where prosperity comes from and how to get more of it. it what's interesting is even in your question is embedded the framework of neoclassical economics, which is how societies acquire and organize resources – And that way of thinking about what an economy is, you know, we we just think is wrong. Markets don't work by efficiently allocating uh, scarce resources, although that is the orthodox way to look at it. Markets are the greatest social technology ever invented for creating prosperity because they allow huge numbers of people to cooperate, to compete, to evolve new solutions to human problems, which is what prosperity is. So, you know, the the point of economics is to try to figure out what prosperity is, where it comes from, and how to justly and sustainably get more of it. And we believe that our framework, you know, can point humanity in a much better direction than the existing framework. But you do really have to kind of go back to square one. How do we answer this question?
1: yeah so I would I would say Jason that uh, absent a <laughs> the the new economics, um, absent an, a, an introductory textbook that can introduce your students to the new way of economics which you're right has a lot to do with human ecology and complexity science and yeah. many other fields outside of uh, typically thought of as outside of economics um I think you can use your existing Econ 101 textbooks to teach your students to critically think about economics by showing them where the textbook is, if not always wrong, not always right. Uh, If you're using, for example, uh, Mankiw's Principles of Economics, which is the the most um, widely used Econ 101 textbook, and I'm sure this is true in almost all of them, that textbook in particular uh, uses the minimum wage as the illustration of the natural and um, universal inverse relationship between price and demand. There's a chart there showing that if you raise the minimum wage, it will decrease employment, and it makes that assertion. And yet we have decades of empirical evidence showing that this is not true. So that chapter will say, oh, well, in a monopsony uh, context, that won't hold true. Well, that it's great. You now get to have a discussion. Uh, Are the labor markets, uh, are these monopsony markets largely? Is that why raising the minimum wage is not decreasing employment? Or is there something deeper more fundamentally flawed in the models uh, at the heart of neoclassical economics. So I think it is useful to take the existing textbooks and step through them with a critical eye and question all of their assertions and teach your students to question those assertions. And maybe while you're there, uh, suggest that they read further into things like complexity science and, uh, evolutionary psychology and, uh, yeah, but Goldie Iva, I think we can offer a, actually a practical suggestion,
3: um, which is that our friends, Sam Bowles and Wendy Carlin, right. who are absolutely at the forefront of new economic thinking with, you know, help from lots of people. And in fact, uh, fairly substantial donation from yours truly have created something called core econ c-o-r-e econ which is uh, a new econ 101 curriculum which i believe for educators is free or yes, darn nearly free, free. Yeah. it's
1: online it's
3: in the public domain that's right go check out core econ uh and that may be of great use to you that's a at least a step in the right direction
1: okay um uh- Nick, uh, you've been uh, spending a lot of time in uh, London recently, so this is a question uh, that that you might be able to answer. On Facebook, Chris messaged us asking, do you think Britain would do well to move to the Nordic model, both economically and socially? Britain is in one huge and dire mess compounded greatly, in my view, by Brexit. Thanks.
3: Couple of things. I think. I think first, Chris is uh, right that you know the UK is currently suffering from a massive self-inflicted wound, which was Brexit, and you know withdrawing from the European Union has made commerce flowing in and out of Great Britain much, much, much harder. And if you if you compare, however inadequate this may be, GDP growth rates for all the major European countries, plus Great Britain. I mean, Great Britain is way below everybody else. It's really terrible. Um, and they have a conservative government in charge uh, who is probably in many ways uh, pointing the country in an even worse direction just because conservative economics, trickle-down economics are all they know. And uh, though there are no tools there to really get them out of the mess. Uh, but to the main point, I mean, I just don't think there's any question... That what we call the Nordic model, which is basically a commitment to markets, but with an equally big commitment to making sure that markets don't uh, that mostly create good and don't create harm, and that there's a big safety net, and that inequality is um, moderated to a certain extent. That is currently on planet Earth the best available governance model that we have. Uh, So should Britain be heading towards that model? Hell yes. So should the United States. And frankly, so should, you know, uh, every country in the world and the countries. I mean, it's just unambiguously true that the countries that basically do that, whether they are in uh, Scandinavia, like Norway or Sweden, or countries that do that, who are not in Scandinavia, like Australia and New Zealand just end up with economies that work better uh, and uh, certainly have circumstances for their uh, middle-income families that are far better than the people who don't. And so, yeah, hell yes, they should do that. And if they did, it would be better.
1: Wasn't Britain already a good portion of the way towards the Nordic model before uh, Thatcher? Well, geez, I don't know. Certainly much further along than we were. Yeah, probably, probably. yeah, we're big fans. I think one of my favorite episodes, Nick, was our conversation with uh Anu Partanen, the uh, author of the Nordic theory of everything. Yeah. And uh at the end of that podcast I revealed that I I think I'm I I might be a secret nord. Yeah. Um <laughs> a Jewish it, nord. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the the thing that was so appealing about Anu's argument uh is that she points out that they're actually more free than Americans. The American, and uh, I suppose to some extent, maybe the British um, reaction to a strong social safety net to, you know, a social democracy is that uh, big government impinges on your freedom. But she points out that when, um, you know, you don't have to worry about how you're going to pay for daycare Uh, how to go back to your job when you have small children, because there's always access to affordable daycare, that uh, you don't have to worry about moving into a neighborhood where the schools are good, because all the schools are good. Uh, You don't have to worry about how uh, you're going to pay for uh, an illness or a medical emergency, because your health care is always paid for. Uh, you don't have to worry about how you're going to pay for college and whether your parents will support you and help pay your right. tuition, uh, because uh, college and uh, graduate school tuition uh, is paid for. It gives you this freedom to the, pursue the things in life that you value most, Um Outside of these financial limitations that we impose on people in countries like the United States, where these things are not taken care of and they're not guaranteed. And in some cases, they're just not available. Uh, I mean, I, I know people who. Uh, get on the waiting list for uh, daycare before they get pregnant. And they, couples who plan their pregnancies around where they are on the waiting list. It's not even a question of, can you afford it? Is, is there a slot for your child uh, if you have one? And that is utterly ridiculous. And we see if anything in the uh, wake of the of of the COVID crisis, uh, if there's anything that hasn't recovered on the employment front, it's the employment of uh, child rearing age women, uh, because a lot of them can't return to work because they don't have child care. And so perhaps we wouldn't be as much in this inflationary cycle right now if we could get everybody who wants to work back into the workforce uh, by making these uh, necessary services available. So big vote for the Nordic model from me.
0: My name is Mark, and I'm from Uluwa, Tennessee. It's East Tennessee. I would love to hear you weigh in on what I believe is the pernicious role of metrics in the workplace and in the economy. Now, my question is rooted in my 30 years experience as director in a large nonprofit that served private colleges and universities. Now, for the most part, I absolutely love my work, so I'm not complaining. But as I look at my job, it was mostly to add value to the extracurricular experience of students. It had to do with service learning, leadership development, and stimulating a moral imagination. Now, while there are clearly ways of doing this productively and non-productively, I found that it was impossible to capture the qualitative and intangible aspect of our work through the quantitative analysis of metrics that our overlords increasingly demanded of us. And so if the rule of metrics is as pervasive as it seems to be, is our work and the economy really being served? Must everything first be counted in order for us to prove accountability? Thanks for wrangling with this question if you choose to. And I love your show.
3: Yeah, so I love this question uh, about metrics because I just find the quantification of everything and the sort of modern. A con, you know, sort of obsession with KPIs and measuring everything to be, you know, taking us in many ways in the wrong direction. Now, don't, mm-hmm. you know, don't get me wrong. You do have to measure some stuff, right? You have to be clear sighted about what you're doing and how it's going and how you're performing relative to others and all sorts of other stuff like that. But the amount of sub-optimization that occurs when we let the measurement rule the roost it's just crazy and you know even in a relatively simple business where you have these incentives in place based on measurements for employees things as simple as sales i mean you know if you if you sell umbre- if your company sells umbrellas and it happens to not rain in a particular salesperson's territory and they don't sell any umbrellas uh, does it make sense to not pay them any money because they didn't sell they, umbrellas meet their
1: quota yeah, yeah. They, they were e- non productive
3: even if they're the best salesperson that you have i mean it's just it's ludicrous to be right. imprisoned by these metrics and we often and certainly in public life measure all the wrong things i mean gdp being a the canonical example of measuring the wrong thing and cripes goldie we don't even measure median gdp right <laughs> right we measure average gdp uh w- which means that the gdp that bill gates and and uh and jeff bezos create cancels out the gdp how am i saying this you know what I'm what i'm trying to say is that
1: right when you have a lot of gdp is uh is income you're measuring yeah. income and so the income of bill gates <laughs> uh d- just basically uh, distorts the average gdp you think yeah. oh great look how much uh, the economy average is growing average gdp go yeah right, a but few it's people really are winning and bill and- else is losing Right. Bill Gates yeah. and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Well, not recently, Elon Musk. He's been negative GDP the last yeah. couple of months. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, yeah, yeah, it doesn't say anything about the lived experience of the typical uh person. So so clearly metrics can be useful, they can be informative, uh, they can help paint a picture of the economy. But the thing about metrics is that. Uh, Some things are easier to measure than others, and we tend to measure the things that are easiest to measure and ignore the things that are hard Uh, for obvious reasons. You can put a number. If there is a dollar value on something, you can report dollar values. What what you can't do, and we've had this conversation, Nick, and, and we could be snarky about it if you want, but how do you measure my productivity? How could you possibly do that? And and the typical measurements are are absurd. You know, we've right. talked about this, that if I'm producing ten thousand words a month and you're paying me ten thousand dollars a month, I'm getting a dollar a word and I suddenly start producing twelve thousand words a month and they're just as good. High quality words, maybe even better. And as a reward you give me a raise to $13,000 a month because you think I deserve more than a dollar a word and I should be paid for every word because you're a good guy. My productivity is decreased because you're getting fewer words per dollar. Even though I'm producing more words and higher quality words because you increase my pay, my productivity goes down under the typical way of measuring uh, productivity. And that's crazy because that's not the real world. The real world is I got more productive I'm more valuable. I'm producing more value. The fact that you're paying me more doesn't change that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, the whole thing is a little crazy. Uh, And so, you know, we want to use metrics, I think, judiciously, uh, but we definitely don't want to live in a world ruled by these dumb algorithms because Mm -hmm. they will, you know, they will create more harm than good. That's for sure.
1: Uh, Okay, Nick question about free markets via email from Anthony. Uh, Anthony uh, asks uh, ages ago I came to the resolution that the free market is not a force of nature such as wind fire, etc. So why are free markets treated that way? Why aren't we allowed to question them?
3: Yeah, well, Anthony you're you're dead right. Uh, free markets are not a, a natural phenomenon or a force of nature. They are a social and political construct created by and for human societies. And um, if they're well managed and pointed in the right direction, they create a lot of good. And if they're not, they don't. But the question about why free markets are treated this way is a political and social and psychological one. And it has a lot to do with who has power and who Uh wants to keep the power and doesn't want anybody else to have power. And if you are a captain of industry, if you're the chamber of commerce, if you represent the interests of capital, then you definitely want markets to be as unconstrained as possible, because if they are, all of the benefits will accrue to capital. And the whole ruse around free markets is really a ruse around tricking people into believing something that will uh, effectively entice them to cede power status and privileges to the owners of capital. And that's what that whole game is about, right? It's a, it's a propaganda game aimed at convincing the broad public that, uh, you know, anything that constrains businesses or capital will be bad for everybody. And, and look, you know, corporations hate, you know, hate regulations for the same reason that, robbers hate cops it it makes it harder to steal and <laughs> uh and you know so we should be confident that the market is not free or uh not it does not benefit from being unconstrained and uh aggressively regulate them to ensure that economic activity creates welfare for societies and all the economic activity that's enriching the few but harming people uh gets stamped out and 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 that's that so
1: right uh we're we're not allowed to question free markets for the same reason historically uh we would be branded as heretics for questioning uh god yeah <laughs> you know or the, the church, orthodoxy right yeah the church it the church it, it's it serves it it serves the interests of the powerful of the powerful, the, of the powerful. And to keep you from questioning the ideology that keeps them in power.
3: Yeah, there you go.
1: Okay, gang, if you want to
3: be part of our next AMA episode, please call and leave your questions on our voicemail line at 731 388 9334 or fill out the contact form on our website pitchforkeconomics.com. Please remember to follow or subscribe to the show wherever you listen. And if that happens to be on Apple or Spotify, please, pretty please with sugar on top, leave us a five-star rating or review. Thank you so much for listening.
2: Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.